Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. So I think having that ambitious goal in mind from the start was uh, something that really helped us make better decisions in the early days when you know things are scrappy and small. We, we still wanted to make decisions that would allow us to, to get to scale. It's harder to demonstrate in a very impactful way so customers just get it and that they immediately understand and want to go for it. Whereas a solar light, it just, it's so obvious that it's better than kerosene. Um, you know, it, it takes half a second to explain that. I'm very pleased today to introduce Ned Tozen. Ned is the co-founder of D-Light, a for-profit social enterprise that designs, manufactures and distributes solar lights and power products to the developing world. D-Light has developed a range of solar lighting products at many different pricing points, including the Delight S2, which is the world's most affordable high-quality solar light. The company has sold over 6 million solar light and power products in nearly 60 countries, improving the lives of nearly 30 million people. Thank you very much, Ned, for taking the time today to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs and for coming on to the podcast. Thanks. It's really great to be here. Tell me a little bit about Delight and tell me a little bit about your journey to set the business up. So Delight got started now about nine years ago, and we started the company with the mission to eradicate kerosene lanterns for people without access to electricity in the developing world. And the company was actually inspired by uh, an experience my business partner had. Uh, this is Sam Goldman. He, he was living in Benin uh, initially as part of the uh, Peace Corps, and then he stayed for another couple of years in Benin. And while he was in Peace Corps in Benin, his neighbor's kid was burned in a kerosene fire, essentially tipped over the um, kerosene lamp and just was doused in flames. Uh, the child ended up surviving, but um, Sam really had this uh, you know, experience of realizing that this makes no sense, that you have 1.3 billion people in the world who have no access to electricity, uh, which is actually more people without electricity than there were in Thomas Edison's time. And then you have another billion people who have a, an electric connection, but it's so unreliable and erratic that essentially they're off-grid most of the time. And you have uh, people burning kerosene for light in the 21st century when we can launch satellites into space, when we can put mobile phones in our pockets, uh, and yet um, we have people using this 18th century technology for lighting, uh, which is dangerous, it's polluting, it's, it's dim, and it's actually expensive. There's about $38 billion spent every year globally on kerosene for lighting. So that's really what inspired the, the company uh, from starting. And we uh, met up in business school. So I had studied engineering initially, and I, I went off to start a couple companies in Silicon Valley. Um, but in parallel to doing that, I was doing a lot of volunteer work with my, my wife um, and had a chance to travel overseas and, and do work some work in Africa and really had a very impactful experience doing that. Um, and really wanted to find a way to leverage entrepreneurship and technology in a way that would create a really meaningful impact for people's lives uh, rather than just making people who are already, frankly, fairly well off, just marginally happier. I really wanted to do something with my life and with my experience to, to really make a difference for people um, and where technology can make a really you know, step change impact for, for families. So Sam and I joined forces in business school and we started Delight together and we set an initial goal of impacting 100 million people by 2020, which was 
uh, a very ambitious goal, but it was something that really allowed us to rally others to the cause and uh, set a clear vision for us to, to go for. And essentially, by the time we graduated business school at Stanford, we, um, I went off to China and I, uh, to figure out how do we make the product affordably and how do we uh, do it at really great quality at a cost people can afford. And Sam went to India, uh, which was our first market and set up our first sales uh, operation there. And you know, ever since then, we've just been growing. Uh, we just celebrated this month our 60 millionth customer. So we're really excited about that. We're 60% to that crazy ambitious goal uh, of 100 million people impacted. And what's been so exciting to me to see is that you know, beyond just eradicating kerosene lanterns, uh, now these solar technologies and you know, solar technologies coupled with highly efficient LEDs with efficient mobile phone charging uh, applications, efficient uh, uh, appliances like radios and TVs, you're now able to offer families beyond, much beyond just lighting uh, through solar. And you're, we're finding that in places like um, Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of India, parts of Southeast Asia, solar is actually having the potential to completely leapfrog the grid, just like mobile phones completely leapfrog the grid uh, or I should say completely leapfrog landline technology in many of these markets. And solar is becoming more and more affordable. Uh, appliances and devices are getting more and more efficient. Um, so you're able to deliver you know, more and more application per watt generated. Um, and through financing mechanisms, whether that's through microfinance organizations or uh, what we call pay-as-you-go uh, mechanisms that allow customers to pay for their product through mobile money in, in small installments so they can pay as they go, uh, through these financing mechanisms and innovations that are happening in financing in these markets, we're um, able to offer high, you know, more and more complex offerings to customers and um, diverse sets of offerings to customers so they can have a more holistic energy solution beyond just lighting. So um, it, what's been really amazing for me to see is how our vision, which, is, which seemed incredibly ambitious when we started out to eradicate kerosene lanterns for, for so many people, how that was really just a first step. Uh, and enabling uh, a complete change in how energy is delivered and um, and accessed in in these markets. So that's a little bit about Delight and what we're up to. Wow, it's a very exciting project and a great success so far. So congratulations, that's amazing. Yeah, thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about the technology? You know, we have everything ranging from the world's most affordable solar lantern at uh, roughly five dollars retail, uh, which is it's very simple. It just has a solar panel, uh, battery, LED. Um, where you charge it during the day and then you get light at night and you can replace your kerosene lantern. It's far brighter than a kerosene lamp. Uh, all the way from, from that up to uh, a solar home system that's uh, roughly $150 retail that has multiple lights, can charge multiple phones, run a radio, run some basic devices. Uh, so that's the full range of products we have today. We're continuing to add products. Uh, we just launched uh, a, a new product very recently, a few months ago. And we'll be continuing to have new product innovations come out uh, in the coming months. Right, right. So you have a very broad-based range of products suitable for, I guess, different kinds of situations, different families, different incomes, and so forth. Yeah, exactly. Great, great. Now, you mentioned at the beginning this ambitious goal. I mean, 100 million certainly was an ambitious goal. But beyond that, the idea of eliminating it completely. Can you talk a little bit about scale and how you thought about that and the process you went through thinking about, you know, how you would reach these huge numbers? Yeah. And I think this is one of the, the things that allowed us to be successful is we really thought about 
how do we do this at scale from day one? And this is something I really advise other social entrepreneurs to be thinking about. Um, you know, when we thought about what kinds of people we want to hire uh, and bring onto the company, uh, we really look for you know the best talent that could help us scale up and not just you know run a company that was doing a thousand lights a month, but could sell half a million lights a month or a million lights a month. So we wanted to get that kind of capability onto the team from from the early days, um, and we thought about that when making strategic decisions. Um, you know, is this going to be a path that's going to allow us to reach scale or is this kind of a short-term sighted thing that's um, that's not allowing us to scale? Uh, so, and I think we planted that idea of scale in, in everyone's mind from the beginning. So, you know, we really made sure we, you know, set up our incorporation in a way that could allow us to to get scale in, in, in investment. Uh, we attracted the kind of investors who were really looking to scale up a, a company. So all those, you know, we were able to get all the pieces lined up from, the kind of supply chain partners we had, the kind of people we had in our team, kind of investors we had around the table, um, to the kind of you know distributors we put on, brought on board. Everything was aligned to uh, what can enable us to really scale and achieve this goal. So I think having that ambitious goal in mind from the start was uh, something that really helped us make better decisions in the early days when you know things are scrappy and small. Um, uh, we we still wanted to make decisions that would allow us to to get to scale. Sounds great. A very visionary approach. What decisions might you have made if you hadn't been thinking about that level of scale? Or what were some of the maybe one or two kind of interesting insights that you got when you put this lens of really big scale onto what you were doing? Well, I think one of them was really in the kind of capital we attracted to the company. So from the um, early stages, you know, we had a lot of interest from uh, potential uh, foundations that could give us some capital to to scale up. We had interest from impact focused investors, and we had, um, uh, but we really wanted to get venture capital investors on board with the company in addition to impact investors. So we we wanted to make sure that we preserve the overall mission and vision of the company and having that kind of impact focused investor. But we also felt like it was really important for us to have venture capital guys uh, on board because we wanted to have that push to scale and to have investor partners on board that could help us also attract other kinds of capital and who could put additional capital in if we needed uh, to raise future rounds. And that would also enable us to attract the right kind of talent. You know, by having venture capital investors, you are able to attract different kinds of talent than if you if you don't. So uh, that was one of the things I think we did from the start that was uh, was a key decision. It was a. Uh, I remember we we debated about it in the early days, and then really decided that it was very important for us to have venture money in the company. And we uh, we worked hard to to make sure that was part of the overall um, configuration on on the investment. I think that was a good decision for us. Yes, absolutely. How hard is it to get VC money for something like this? And what are the insights for others that would like to do the same? Well, you know, I think in our case, I, I, I wouldn't, first of all, advocate for venture money for every kind of social enterprise that's out there. I think it worked effectively for us because uh, we really viewed from the beginning that solar really was analogous to the mobile phone industry in its real infancy. Uh, and I think that's coming more and more to fruition now. But um, even in the early days, we, we felt that. And we really believed to achieve the maximum impact, we needed to build a really big company. For that reason, we felt the the social impact and mission really went hand in hand in getting very scalable capital, um, in particular from from venture capital. So because we had that strong business case, um, I think we were able to to attract venture capitalists. Of course, 
you know, we probably had um, and in the early days, I think we pitched dozens of times to different venture capitalists. So we got a lot of rejections, but that's that's normal. That's part of the process. Also helps you get better and refine your plan. Uh, but we were able to attract interest, and I think what they saw is a really big market opportunity. They saw a team that was really um, uh, believed in uh, the mission, and that's something that you know the venture guys also want to see. I mean, they want to see uh, companies that are going to change the world, and you have founders that are absolutely passionate about what they're doing. And I think they saw that in the the founding team, and you know they saw uh, that we had some early traction that that looked promising. So I think the right ingredients were there um, for you know raising that kind of capital. I think there's other kinds of businesses that aren't necessarily analogous to the mobile phone industry that are um, that are just going to have lower returns than uh, venture investors would want to see. And I think that's completely fine. Um, and in that case, you know, uh, I think a different kind of investment or capital raising strategy would make sense. But in our case, uh, I think having the venture capitalists behind us uh, because of the way we, we saw the, the market and the characteristics of the market we were in, I think made a lot of sense. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. What about the actual business model? Because clearly, if you want to scale, it's one thing to have a vision to scale. There's got to be a viability, I suppose. The model has got to work in restructure in such a way that there's economics of it work. Can you talk a little bit about that and at what stage you were when you went to the venture capitalists, I guess, in terms of already have, having had a pilot scheme of one kind or another? Yeah, we had some very early, um, you know, frankly, we didn't really even have sales when we first raised our seed round, but we at least had... Um, letters of intent from distributors to purchase our products in the early, early days. And that was enough to give um, confidence that uh, there was some traction there. Uh, we also did quite a lot of uh, customer research. So we spent a lot of time with the end customers and um, doing a lot of prototyping. And I think uh, really knowing our customers and um, having a product that was uh, you know, accepted well by the customer and having data around that was also very compelling uh, to the the investors who put money in us in the early stage. And I think in terms of the business model, you know, one thing we learned uh, in order to really achieve a high degree of scale across many different countries, uh, because we didn't want to be an India-only country, uh, in India-only company, uh, we wanted to get into Africa fairly soon after. In fact, we opened an office in Africa about a year after opening an office in India. Um, really to, the key to doing that was identifying the right kinds of partners in these markets uh, that had access to these, uh, the customers we wanted to reach um, and that had a willingness to invest in this kind of business. And then we would work alongside them uh, to, to really build the brand, uh, build, um, build pull in the market because you know, just making the product available, it doesn't mean it will sell. Uh, you really have to create demand for it. And especially when we started out, solar really wasn't a very known category in these uh, in these markets, and in fact, uh, if customers had been exposed to solar, it was often very low quality stuff that might break, you know, after a couple of weeks. So people were reluctant at first. So it really required that market, you know, demonstration, education, marketing, and those were things that we really focused on supporting our distributors with to enable the sell through. Um, and then, you know, by signing up more and more partners in different markets and having models for how to do marketing. Uh, to complement what they're doing, it allowed us to um, really have a business model that was uh, much more scalable than if we just kind of focused on doing everything ourselves in one limited geographic area. Wow, that's very interesting, putting together partners. That seems to me a huge challenge to market 
products in, in any case is saturated Western markets with such extreme competition. But I guess there's an opposite problem in many of these markets where great fragmentation, uh, no communication, uh, people are isolated and that kind of thing. How did you approach that and what insights have you got about you know marketing in these kind of environments? Well, I think there's a number of insights that we've we've had over time. One is that the benefit of selling something like a solar-powered light is that not only does it save the customer money because they don't have to buy kerosene, but there's a huge step up in the quality of life for these families when they upgrade from kerosene to solar-powered light. So, and it's very visual and easy to understand. So it's it's actually not uh, that hard of a sell in a sense compared with other kinds of things like um, you know there's products clean cook stoves for example that will are you know tremendously impactful, uh, but they will have a health impact, a long-term health impact for the family. And it just, it's harder to um, you know, really uh, demonstrate in a very impactful way so customers just get it and the, they immediately understand and want to go for it. Whereas a solar light, it just, it's so obvious that it's better than kerosene. Um, you know, it, it takes half a second to explain that. And then, there's, of course, there's questions about how does the warranty work and what does it cost and all that. But the interest, um, it's not difficult to get the interest once people see and touch and feel the, the product. So really the key for us was about figuring out how to get demonstration into these markets, how to get first adopters in, in villages so word of mouth could spread. So, you know, the, the techniques of marketing could range from village demonstrations, uh, and promotional activities to we had school campaigns where we would do kind of educational activities in the schools uh, to educate about solar and you know that uh, families would get to learn about our products that way. So there's various different ways that we did marketing, but the key was really enabling people to to really understand and touch and feel the product, um, and then uh, get those first adopters in those areas to start getting traction in, into the markets. Right, that's very interesting. I, it sounds quite labor intensive at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And most of our people are in market for that reason. So, you know, we we do quite a lot of innovation on the product side, but I would say in order of magnitude, more innovation has to go into uh, the marketing side, the distribution partnership support side and, and those elements of the business. And that's really where we have the bulk of our team. Right, right. That's interesting. And I guess economics matter there as well, having a certain amount of surplus that different partners can participate in as well. Right, right. So it's really important that everyone along the channel is making, you know, healthy margins. So um, it can be self-sustaining and, and running and motivating for everyone in the channel. Because um, if you don't have a sustainable value chain, then uh, you don't have a sustainable business. And, you know, effectively, the way we think about it is, you know, if you just sort of donated a bunch of lights in an area, um, okay, you might get some people off kerosene for some period of time, but you're not actually creating a, a sustainable solution to the, the problem. Whereas if you have distributors and retailers and you know, sales agents and everyone who's um, you know, economically benefiting from having these solar products in the market, you're actually creating a sustainable and long-term change. So people, once they upgrade from kerosene, then they're done with kerosene permanently, which is really what we want to see. Yeah, that's very interesting because you talked about change. And I guess in many market situations, status quo is the dominant feature. And it's hard yeah. to create change. And, and often you've got an ecosystem, you've got people who are benefiting from the status quo. And presumably, there is a pretty well developed or entrenched suppliers of kerosene and so forth. I mean, how important a factor was that? I mean, presumably, you looked into that at the beginning. And how's that worked out? Well, it, it depends a bit. Um, we tend to sell through different kinds of uh, distribution channels than the way kerosene is distributed. Um, we actually end up partnering with some 
uh, oil and gas companies. So, for example, Total is one of our uh, biggest distribution partners, and they've been an amazing supporter. And they really want to see um, solar um, uh, essentially leapfrog uh, kerosene in these markets, and they want to be part of that change. Um, so, and, and Total themselves are have become a big solar player in the world. Um, I believe they're the number two solar player now in the in the world after their acquisition of SunPower. So they really see this strategically as, as part of their future. So they're really working with us to um, you know, make these products available in many markets throughout Africa and Asia. Um, so you know, that's kind of one part of the equation is I think you know, uh, companies that are doing oil and kerosene are seeing this as part of the future and they want to invest in it and, and go in that direction rather than um, you know, being stuck in the past while the world changes. And then there's you know, informal distribution channels uh, where kind of like sachets of kerosene are, are distributed in small increments into kind of like the mom and pop shops, I, I would say, where you might get a sachet of soap or, you know, um, oils for, uh, for cooking and various different kinds of supplies for the household. And in that case, as kerosene demand goes down, um, then people are freed up to spend their income on other things. So those shops can kind of diversify their offerings so people can then buy more you know, food items or other kind of items for their home. So, you know, in that case, kerosene doesn't comprise a massive percent of the sales of that particular little kiosk. So they're able to, you know, diversify as the village uh, changes over time to being a solar village, then they can, you know, they'll, the spending uh, patterns and behavior of that community then change. And then the retail um, uh, environments can adapt to that. Right, 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 great. What have been a few of the biggest challenges for you as you've grown? Well, I think one of the things, you know, from going from a company of being, you know, a few people in a room, <laughs> you know, with an idea uh, to now we're uh, nearly 500 people globally. Uh, we operate in uh, Nairobi, Shenzhen, Delhi, um, Lagos. We have an uh, office in San Francisco. We have a highly distributed team. And I think one of the challenges is uh, creating a consistent team feeling across the whole company. Uh, so, you know, everyone uh, can feel like a delighter and understanding what the, you know, uh, totally aligned to what the purpose and vision and mission and direction of the company is. And I think that's something that we've had to be much more conscious about uh, as we've grown and to understand you know, how do we um, communicate consistently across the company, across geographies and across cultures, and how do we really create a, a unified team feeling rather than having sort of microcultures develop. So that's been... Uh, been a challenge that we've been actively working on, um, but I think you know is is something that's just uh, the nature of having a very distributed team. It's something that we have to be constantly spending time and energy on. Uh, I also think uh, being able to recruit fast enough, uh, the um, you know the level of of talent and and passion and every everything else in uh, in these markets as we're growing very quickly and being able to to keep on top of that and hiring uh, the the right people fast enough. Uh, is is always a challenge for a growing company. I mean, I think that's by typical in any uh, environment, and especially in in some of these markets where um, you know talent is fiercely fought for. Um, uh, so um, I think those have been a couple things. Um, and I think what's been uh, another interesting thing that's come up more recently is is the solar category has been more established. We've seen in the last. 18 to 24 months, we've really seen a rise of a lot of counterfeit products. And the reason this, this is happening is that now you have this demand that's been created at the um, down to the village level 
for these products. Whereas before when we started out, there wasn't an existing demand. We had to create that demand. But now that the demand's been created, uh, you have companies that are acting in an opportunistic way, creating very low quality products, even branding them D-Lite. So they, you know, they look um, at the surface like a D-Lite product, but of course they're very substandard components that are in there. They'll break very quickly. Um, and you know, they're kind of leveraging off the goodwill that we've created. So that's been uh, something that we've been working on with the local customs authorities to block those shipments of counterfeit products, um, quality certification organizations to make sure um, obviously these counterfeits don't get quality certifications. So you know, there's a number of different things we've done to try to block that. But uh, with counterfeits, you kind of whack a couple down and then more pop up. So it's been a constant battle for us. And you know, we always knew that it would be a sign of success when knockoffs came up. Uh, and I think that's true really with any, uh, any industry, especially for a hardware industry in, in the markets we work with. So you know, I, think that's, I don't think that problem will go away, but it's something that certainly is, is a new issue that we're facing now as the market is matured. Right, right. That's an interesting one. I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> you were an entrepreneur before you went to business school. Or you had experience setting up businesses and so forth. How is it different being an entrepreneur, would you say, in a social business? Oh, gosh. I think there's a lot of uh, things that are really different. One is just the, um, the level of fulfillment that I personally get out of um, running delight is just immense. And I think that, you know, I see that with our team as well. And especially when I have a chance to go out into the field and talk to our customers um, and just really reconnect with how transformational these products really are. And, um, you know, it's, it's really true that these products you know, completely transform the way these, um, uh, the, these households are. I mean, kids can now study uh, during the evening, whereas before they were trying to study with a smoky and, and, um, dangerous kerosene lamp and it was very difficult to get any studying done. So we've seen study hours increase significantly for kids. Um, there's much more opportunity for families to do productive activities in the evening that can help them make more income. Uh, shops can stay open longer as a result. Um, and just you have health impacts in the household. We've heard a lot about um, you know their kids coughing, going away once they were able to upgrade from kerosene to solar light. So there's just so many dimensions of impact. I mean, not to mention actually the carbon that's offset. I mean, we've now offset over 20 million tons of CO2 uh, from, you know, just be able to displace these kerosene lanterns, uh, which is, which is huge. It's taking million, essentially the equivalent of taking millions of cars off the road. Um, and, but, uh, you know, and just to kind of connect with that impact of what we're doing, it's, it makes the work incredibly fulfilling, even though it's incredibly challenging work uh, that definitely, uh, is a real motivator and, and driver for me. And just to be able to, um, you know, talk to my, I have a, a three-year-old son and he kind of gets now what we're doing and he's connected with it and to be able to tell him about what, what I do. And, um, you know, it's, it's very satisfying feeling to be able to, um, do work that's really creating a good impact in the world. So I think that's really the main difference for me is just sort of the, uh, on a, a real emotional level, uh, the level of satisfaction and fulfillment that I, I feel in doing this. And I, I just you know, feel inspired by our customers every, every day um, with just with the, um, the little bit of opportunity they get through, through these products to, um, to have light, you know, all the things that that opens up for these families and that they take advantage of to really make their uh, uh, future better for their, their kids and for themselves. And it's just incredibly inspiring to see. So um, you know, I just get really fired up um, when thinking about and when visiting our customers. Wow, that's very inspiring, Ned. 
Thank you for that. You mentioned impact. That's bandied around a lot. And it's a whole series of other words now, uh, jargon around impact. And obviously, <laughs> it's a really important question, yeah. measuring impact and so forth. What are your thoughts? I mean, it's a big topic. If you had to say one or two things, uh, the insights you've had about the question of impact and measuring impact and thinking about impact in your organization. Well, we really want to be honest in how we measure and, and report impact. I mean, we really believe the impact we're making is big. So we don't feel the need to exaggerate it or to um, or anything else. We really want to have it be credible. So I think one of the things that we've been doing as an organization uh, that I'm, I'm really proud of is working with the industry association. There's been an industry association now that's formed around off-grid uh, solar and lighting. Uh, and we've worked uh, with that industry association along with the World Bank um, along with IFC and, and some other institutions that have come together to really think about how do we measure impact in the space in a very credible way. So when we're saying 60 million lives impacted, that's something that it's not just we're saying by our own self-reported you know, standard, but it's something that is, is really third-party certified and it's something that um, you know, makes sense. And we've, we've also been able to do uh, through some, some other funding we've received is, is do studies on what is the actual education impact for these products? What is the actual health impact for these products in, in you know, various focused areas? And how do we measure that? How do we think about it? What is the cost savings for, for these products? And as we learn that information, we feed that back into our overall reporting. So we have an impact dashboard um, on our website that we report and update every month. And uh, those numbers are actually, we do a lot of thinking around how to calculate those numbers and make sure that you know other credible third parties sign off on those that methodology. So when we're reporting those numbers, we can really stand behind them. So I think one of the things that happens often with impact um, is, you know, in contrast to financial numbers, you have, you know, on the financial side, you'll have auditors check out your numbers and you have a high degree of scrutiny around how you calculate that. But on the impact side, things are left a bit loose. Um, and, you know, I think having a same level of rigor around how we calculate and measure impact, uh, especially as we get to these kinds of numbers and scale, we want to be very credible in how we talk about those and how we measure them. So that's been something that we've been really working on over the last few years. And uh, I think, you know, we, we feel very confident in, and uh, when we, you know, report our numbers and we say we've impacted 60 million people. Um, and, you know, same thing with CO2 offset or, you know, money saved from kerosene and various other metrics we look at. Wow, that's very interesting. Fascinating to talk to you today, Ned. What's your vision? You mentioned when you set up, you were looking at 2020 and you did this big goal. What time frame are you looking at now? What are your goals there? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question. We're still very focused on getting this 100 million goal accomplished. We're you know, still 40 million people to go. It's a lot of people. So we do want to get that accomplished and not uh, take our eyes off that ball. Uh, but at the same time, you know, really uh, the broader vision that we're seeing in our uh, overall market and industry is that solar really has the opportunity to completely leapfrog the grid. Uh, there's many parts of uh, sub-Saharan Africa and Asia where the grid is just not going to get there in the next 10 years. Um, and we really believe that solar provides this method of, it's this decentralized uh, method of providing power. You don't need to have uh, government funding or, you know, large-scale um, government-funded projects, this can be done through private industry, just like uh, with mobile, the mobile phone industry, where they just you know, could put up a tower in an area and then um, have people connected. And in the same way, we really see uh, the future of energy being solar in these markets. And I think uh, there's an opportunity for families who are off the grid to actually 
surpass where where you know we are living in the U.S. or Europe um, in terms of their technological advancement by going directly to LED-based lighting and solar-powered uh, homes and highly efficient devices. So you'll have these very kind of futuristic homes, and they'll it'll start really in these off-grid areas because they don't have the baggage of this uh, very clunky old you know grid infrastructure. And then I think the developed world will have to catch up to that. And I think that's uh, that's incredibly exciting to me to think about um, uh, these off-grid customers leading the way in terms of uh, the future of energy. And I think um, uh, I you know we really believe Delight will continue to be a pioneer in making that future a reality. Wow! I wish you the very best of success, Ned, with your business. And thank you so much for sharing your experience and insights and energy and passion today. Thanks so much, Fergal. I appreciate being invited on the program. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.